0: Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the 449th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is author Kate Moore, and we're going to be talking about her book, The Radium Girls, The Dark Side of America's Shining Women. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark zapp and our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. To begin, welcome to the show, Kate.
1: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: We are very excited. Uh, This first part we call Farouk Dinarin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background information uh, on the subject. So start us off by just giving us some basic info on what it means or what it meant to be a radium girl. So
1: the radium girls were women who were employed in the First World War and Roaring Twenties to paint watches and clocks with a glow-in-the-dark radium paint. Um, That paint was radioactive, and the women were taught a technique called lip-pointing, which meant they put their paintbrushes laden with radioactive paint between their lips to make a fine point, and in so doing, they swallowed the radium. They were assured by their employers that it was safe uh, to do this because radium was seen as a wonder element at the time. And people thought it was not only safe, um, but actually beneficial to health. And as we now know, obviously, looking back from the modern mindset, um, we know that radioactive paint is hugely dangerous. And these women were poisoned. But they don't take their fate lying down. And the story of the Radium Girls is one of fighting for justice against all the odds. And they are the most courageous and dignified and strong women I have ever encountered.
0: All right. Well, you know, so the first thing that immediately struck me as I was looking at this topic is that somehow we have been here before. Um you know, I was thinking of using uh we used mercury as as a, a medical cure all at one point. Um we've yeah. uh we've we've certainly have had any number of uh factory owners uh telling folks that uh you know, oh by the way, there's nothing to worry about here. Everything is perfectly safe, you'll be fine. Um so, yeah. My, I guess my, my first question is, for these women in these factories, how did this progress? I mean, how long did it take for them to start to realize that maybe things weren't quite what they had been told? And, and then how much resistance developed as they started to sort of fight back against the situation?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the most insidious things about radium poisoning, in particular, is the time that it takes to show any symptoms of itself at all. It takes years, um, and so it wasn't until sort of maybe five years after uh, being exposed to the paint that women started to suffer. But actually, for some women, it was decades. Before, you know, a telltale cancerous tumour began to grow, Uh, they were referred to as time-bomb tumours because of the lapse of time between the first exposure and the potential symptoms. So even when the first women start to get sick, it's about five years after first exposure. And they are up against a huge amount of resistance, you know, they're... You know, pushing back against the received medical wisdom of the age, you know, which is saying that radium is safe. You know, if you went into your local drugstore, you could buy radium dressings, radium pills uh, to treat anything from gout uh, to hay fever to impotence. Um, and as I say, it wasn't even just seen as a medicinal item, you know, radium. Had this sort of reputation as liquid sunshine as something that would pep you up in middle age. It was put into cosmetics to give you a glowing complexion. Um, so the women were pushing back, you know, as I say, not only against the received medical wisdom of the age, but against this huge wall of public received wisdom, and against these companies that were making money from all these products. And of course. The companies didn't want these lucrative industries to come crashing down and say they did everything in their power to try to silence these women, to suppress the truth and to try to make sure that the women never saw justice at all.
0: Well, and, and at least here in the, in the states, you're also working against this is sort of a time of great volatility in terms of workers unionizing and trying to work for, for union, or for workers' rights. Um, you know So w- was that also part of this? Were, were these women attempting to create unions or attempting to organize in one fashion or another and, and having to fight that battle as well?
1: Yeah, in, in in different ways. I wouldn't say they were attempting to unionize in a sort of traditional sense. They were assisted uh, by organizations like the Consumers League, uh, which worked to improve the working conditions uh, of women and children across the United States. Um, the women themselves weren't unionizing, but because of the way it affected them and because this was a job initially that was seen as an incredibly lucrative profession. You know, the girls thought they were lucky to work there because it was a glamorous substance and it was an artistic job and it, was, it paid very well. So this is a, a you know a really tragic situation actually, where when the women are initially getting employed, they think they're blessed. They promote vacancies to their cousins, sisters, friends, you know, but those closest to them, and so when the women start to get sick it's not so much that they're unionising, it's that they're talking to their sisters, their friends about these strange symptoms that they're suffering. And it's the women initially who realise, as Catherine Sharp, one of the key radium girls I write about in my book, she said, there's something going on about this thing. And it's the women initially who decide to band together, you know, based on these friendships that existed even before they worked together. Um, And they do fight back as a group. So there is partly that
0: going on and um, definitely um so also kind of percolating at this time is um a, a women's prohibition uh, a prohibition mu- uh, movement um for alcohol that is driven very strongly by women um we also have uh women's suffrage issues that are percolating up at, at this mm. point um so i'm wondering how much did being a woman affect the way this situation
1: played out? Well, I I think there were sort of two sides to the sort of gender coin in a way. I think on the one hand, their gender meant that uh, the company saw them as expendable. I think it meant that doctors dismissed the women when they reported these symptoms. You know, they were described as hysteric, you know, the fact that they were trying to attribute their poisoning to this wonder element. You know, they they were initially dismissed and sort of seen as these hysteric women just sort of, you know, making it up, it's all in their head and so on and so forth. But the other side was that as the women started to try to get um, you know, public support for their cause, I think their gender actually helped them then because there were lots of photographs of these women, um journalists wrote very sympathetic pieces you know um declaring how awful it was and how tragic it was that these women were losing their beauty uh, that you know women couldn't be mothers and wives um to those people that they were going to have to leave behind when they died you know a lot of the women were crippled by their symptoms so they couldn't be the mothers that they wanted to be and all of that was part of you know, what journalists wrote about, and that really helped to win the women a lot of public support as well. Um, And I also think, you know, the the examples that you've given there, you know, the fight for women's suffrage that was going on at the time, I think all of that fed into the Radium Girls sort of social awareness um, and informed their desire to fight for justice and their belief that they could do something about this and they could speak truth to power. Um, I think that sort of air of female freedom and women having a voice uh, definitely was part of the story and inspired the women to push on, even as everything seemed stacked against them.
0: Okay, um, I'm going to give a spoiler alert here uh, for our our listeners, but... How does this thing it feels to me like we need to know how things kind of ended before we get to our next segment? so this is going to be the last question. How does this end up what what ends up happening as as an end result of of this work?
1: Well, ultimately, uh, the women do prevail. It takes a long time. you know fighting for justice as as anyone will know can take decades of time, but the women do ultimately win uh, a legal judgment against the companies. Um, It is proven medically, scientifically that radium did hurt them and that radium poisoning will result if you ingest radium, which, as I say, at the time, the women started their journeys. But, you know, the opposite was seen as true. And the women, therefore, left us a legacy, not only in terms of the laws that they changed along the way as they made, you know, workplaces safer for all workers, they not only left us that legacy in health and safety and in law, they also left us an extraordinary scientific legacy, a legacy that actually stretched all the way through the 20th century because the women were deemed of national security significance because they were the only cohort of people globally that had been exposed to radiation in this way. And so the women were actually studied for decades. They were exhumed. Uh, They dedicated their bodies to science. They voluntarily you know, subjected uh, themselves to tests because they wanted uh, to help humanity understand what radiation would do to the human body. And I would mean, say their legacy informs even today what scientists are working on in that regard.
0: All right. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA, St. Ambrose University,
2: 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station, submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 88.5, 1061, or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org.
0: And welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the second segment of the show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is author Kate Moore, and we're talking about her book, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. And Rick, as the scientist of the group, why don't you start us off?
3: Kate, uh, when did scientists, uh, the scientific community, learn that uh, and know that radioactive uh, elements like radium were harmful to human health?
1: Well, I mean, that's really the sort of million-dollar question in this case. The honest answer is that from the turn of the century, they knew that radium was dangerous and um, because A scientist. My book actually opens with a prologue um, of a scientist carrying a vial of radium in his uh, waistcoat pocket, and he received a radiation burn from it. So they knew very early on that it could destroy human tissue and flesh. And the fact that the companies knew this too can be seen in the fact that in the laboratories next door to the radium dial painting studio where the women are putting the brushes in their mouths, The lab workers are issued with safety equipment. They're given lead aprons to wear. They wield ivory-tipped tongs so they don't handle the radium directly. So they knew very early on that it was dangerous, but they thought a large amount is what would kill someone, destroy their eyesight, destroy, you know, the flesh. And they thought a small amount was safe. And the other thing that sort of fed into all of this was the discovery that in destroying human flesh, it could destroy cancerous tumours. So it therefore sort of had this reputation as a lifesaver, you know, and it's still used today to treat cancer. You know, it has remarkable results in that regard. And so people thought, well if it's saving lives, it must be a healthful, you know, substance and therefore it started to be exploited in the ways that I previously described, you know, these, you know, these sort of medicinal properties, these dressings, these pills, this reputation as something that could, you know, benefit health. All of that is where it came from.
4: Okay. Ed. Um, Yes, Kate, can you tell us um, how long was radium used um, for the purpose of illuminating um, clock faces and, you know, Uh, watches, etc., was there a different material introduced or was the process changed?
1: Um, It was continued uh, to be used for a lot longer than you might expect, actually. It was the sort of 1960s, 1970s when it fell out of use. Thanks to the radium girls, you know, the radium girls that I write about from the First World War and the roaring 20s, thanks to their bravery in speaking out about what was happening to them and, you know, the scientists finally listening to them and realizing what was going on, the safety standards were changed and were put, you know, protections were put in place, things like glass hoods, uh, the women obviously not lip pointing, so on and so forth. And so, companies were instructed to treat it in a different way, but actually it was in use uh, for decades after the time period that I first write about in the book.
4: And did the process get mechanized, or were the workers just, it was still handwork, but just with greater levels of protection?
1: It was um, still handwork, but with greater levels of protection. and. It's interesting because I've been contacted uh, by people, you know, having written the book um, telling me about people, you know, relatives that they know who did this job, you know, after the time period in which I'm writing. And shockingly, many of them said that even though, you know, the safety standards were changed, actually, lip pointing still did take place. Um, and many of these workers still suffered, even though the safety standards were there, uh, they weren't sufficient ultimately and as I write in the epilogue of my book you know safety standards will only keep you safe as well if the companies that you work for use them and of course uh, that is not always the case even if laws are put in place even if the safety practices are altered companies don't always do what they're supposed to.
0: Kate I'm interested in getting a, a better sense of who uh, the radium girls are. Can you introduce us, so to speak, to some of the the major people who were involved here and what they were like?
1: Absolutely. It would be my pleasure and privilege to do that. And I have to say, you know, my passion for this story is about the individual radium girls. You know, that's who the book is about. That's what drove me to write it because I wanted to commemorate these individual women. So I can introduce you, for example, to Grace Fryer. She was 18 when she started working in the dial painting studio. She was a brilliant young woman. She actually had a job that paid about the same as dial painting when she joined the studio. uh, And dial painters were in the top 5% of female wage earners nationally. So Grace was a super smart cookie. Uh, But she left to join the studio because uh, she wanted to do her bit for the war effort. Um, a lot of the women, you know, in the First World War and also in the Second World War later, were motivated by patriotic reasons, wanting, you know, to do their bit for their country. Um, Grace was the daughter of a union man. She was political herself. Uh, you know, she spoke in her interviews about getting off her sickbed to go and vote once women had the vote, um, and she was a very driven person. Uh, she after leaving a dial painting studio rose to become the head of her department in a bank um so this is the kind of woman that she was and it's grace fryer who leads the new jersey women in their fight for justice and was the person that even though they got you know every legal knockback that they could they couldn't find a lawyer to take the case every lawyer said the statute of limitations has expired you you know haven't got a hope in hell um so far was the one that kept fighting, kept looking for a lawyer, and ultimately did find someone, a young lawyer called Raymond Berry, uh, who was willing to take the case. Um, the other alien girl I just want to mention briefly is a woman called Catherine walls Donahue. She worked in Ottawa, Illinois, Um dial painting is happening all over the United States. Um, in my book, I focus on two centres in particular. And Catherine Wolfe was quite different from Grace Fry. Really, she was a shy woman, softly spoken, incredibly devout, very religious, a family woman. You know, she married uh, a man called Tom Vanahue, a little bit older than her. They had two children together, Tommy and Mary Jane. And all Catherine wants to do is to be with her family. But she finds herself at the heart of this fight for justice, for workers' rights, for compensation driven by the loss of her fellow workers who have succumbed to their radiation poisoning, driven to fight on to try to get some money for her family because they've been, you know, bankrupted by her medical bills. And Catherine was is extraordinary because she's so sick by the time her case comes to trial that she actually collapses in court and, you know, the doctors say it could be fatal for you to continue. But Catherine insists that she wants to, and the call actually goes to her house, and she literally gives evidence on her deathbed because she's so determined to hold these companies to account. Um, and they're just two of the women that I write about in my book, The Radium Girls.
3: Okay, Rick. Yeah, Kate, the, uh, you mentioned uh, Catherine succumbed. What was a mortality percentage, uh, uh, you know, the the shortest term and the longest term of the... Uh, radium g- girls living due to their uh, radiation poisoning?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Actually, one of the most surprising things for me as I researched my book was learning that not all the radium girls died. They didn't all die young, they didn't all officially die from their radiation poisoning. Um, many of them did succumb young, but actually, there was, you know, as you would expect, really. Um, people responded biologically differently to the radiation poisoning. It obviously varied on their unique biological makeup in the same way that different people getting COVID-19 will respond physically in different ways. It depended on how long they worked at the studio. It depended how often they lip pointed the brush. And it depended also on their age when they were dial painting. A lot of the very young teenagers who were working in the studios died young that many of the older women actually survived for decades, um, and you know I, you know, write about women who live into their 80s. Now it's not to say they weren't affected by their poisoning. You know, one woman in particular that I'm thinking of um, actually had to have her arm amputated because she had a cancerous tumour in her elbow, and they had to amputate the arm, but it saved her life. Um, I can't give you an exact percentage. Um, I I don't recall ever reading in the research files that they ever officially said this is the survival rate, this is, you know, how long people lived. Um, But there's that variation. So some women die very young. Others would live for decades, but they might be crippled. They might uh, be, you know, have amputations. They might suffer um, amputations or anemia or... Um, you know, one woman was bedridden for fifty years, but she lived. Um, so there's all these different uh, ways in which the women's bodies reacted physically to what was going on inside them.
4: Okay, Ed. Yeah, Kate. Um, <clears throat> this this uh, started during World War One, and um, this particular job was there a reason that women were hired for this? I mean, were all the men gone out, to, gone off to war, or was there something that, you know, women were perceived to have a lighter touch and better at fine work and that sort of thing?
1: I, I think, yeah, I think you pretty much answered your own question there. I, I think it was it was very uh, delicate handiwork. Um, women, I think, traditionally perhaps have been um, employed in the sort of factories, you know, painting vases and so on. A lot of the original workers were hired from that resource. But ultimately, you know, the women were painting... Numbers that were sometimes a single millimeter in width. And yes, their sort of smaller hands, their attention to detail, all of it lent itself um, to successful employment in studio.
4: And they could be hired probably significantly cheaper than men anyway.
1: I, I think that probably played a big part in it as well, yeah. All
4: right,
0: uh, Kate, I'm curious. No activity like this happens within a vacuum. Um so mm-hmm. who are the people outside of the girls themselves who are instrumental in supporting you've already talked about you know the the lawyer who ultimately agrees to to take the case are there other folks mm-hmm. like that that we need to know about as part of this
1: Absolutely. I mean, I've mentioned a couple of people, you know, the women were supported by other women. So uh, there was a a woman called Catherine Wiley, the executive secretary of the Consumers League. You know, she really fought for changes in the law and to support the women and to, you know, stress to people in the Department of Labor that there there was an issue here. You know, it was all being all the investigations were being shut down and, you know, business was being given the benefit of the doubt or business was the one that had a voice in whether the studios were running, you know, that sort of thing. Catherine Wiley took her concerns right to the top um, and was fearless in, you know, fighting for the women to be heard and, and for action to be taken. Uh, you know, saying this is a tragedy that's happening. This is a workplace issue mm-hmm. and we need to, to tackle it. Um other people who were instrumental a doctor called dr harrison martland he was the one who officially diagnosed the radiation poisoning and who you know essentially discovered what was happening to the radium girls and he is now famous uh, for that so uh, lots of people you know contributed to their journey and uh, to what happened to them you know having a, a um you know making that that point for them and Really figuring out what was going on. Okay. Rick.
3: Yes, Kate. Uh, in the same token, uh, Jay asked who were instrumental in helping the radium girls. Uh, on the opposite side of the coin, who were the main uh, opposition? Uh, I know the the uh, industrial owners would, but politically, who were uh, as well as politically who were those who were in opposition uh, to find a remedy for the radium?
1: girls well as, as you mentioned you know the companies were obviously dead set against them that would be people like arthur reader um who was the president of the united states radian corporation um, his hands were totally dirty in terms of suppressing scientific reports that would have proven the link between the women's jobs and their illnesses much much earlier um people like mr reed who was the you know supervisor in the the studio um who told the women that you know the radium would put rosy cheeks on them and that it was safe there was nothing to worry about um and you know also the lawyers the doctors who are working for the companies you know publishing uh, you know scientific reports that say it, it must be a viral infection in a single studio when actually they had evidence that this was impacting on studios, not just locally, but also nationally. Um, you know, there are a whole host of villains that I wrote about in the book that, you know, as I was uncovering the sort of scientific and the historical facts, you're sort of jaw drops to realise how people can act so callously and egregiously. Um, you know, this story definitely has villains of plenty and you really can't believe that they could act in the way that they, are, that they did. Yeah, Ed. Yeah,
4: um, Keith, can you give us a sense of how many employees were working in this um, field? Uh, there, uh, uh, I've read a couple of reviews of the books, and then there were only uh, a couple of places that this happened. One was in Ottawa, Illinois, and the other one was out east. But how many? how many women were on the payroll at any given time in these places?
1: Well, I can't give you an exact figure because, unfortunately, the employment records simply don't exist um, in the degree that we might wish them to today. And it was also a job that sometimes, you know, high school students might drop into the, the summer uh, to do it or women would swap jobs with their sisters temporarily. Um, so it was, um, there aren't the records that exist to say precisely it was this exact number of women. But we can say that it was in the thousands. Um, To cite numbers from a specific studio, um, when my book opens in 1917, there's about 70 women working in that single studio. Over wartime, that increases to almost 400. Um, And that's just one studio. So it gives you a sense. Um, Because of the scientific legacy of the women, which I mentioned briefly earlier, scientists throughout the 20th century really tried their hardest to track down every single radium dial painter that they could. And as I say, their records uh, stretch into the thousands But even they with all the resources that they had um, couldn't put an exact figure on it and couldn't track down every single person.
0: Kate, I'm going to change gears just slightly because I'm endlessly fascinated right. at the research process that is involved in writing a book like this. Um, So just how long did it take you to do it? And and what surprised you the most as you were going through this process? Because I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe that there wasn't already a book, multiple books out there dealing with this.
1: Yeah, there were books. um, And uh, I found them very helpful in, in my research, but they were very dry academic books. So there was a book on their legal legacy, um, about industrial health reform in that particular time period. And there was also a book about the science of, of radium and all the different products that you could get and where it comes from and, and that sort of thing. What struck me as I was researching, um, and I'll just briefly explain how I came to the story, which was I directed a play about the women and because I wanted my theatre production to be authentic, I really dug deep into you know this story, So I read those other books that I mentioned and I was just stunned that the book I wanted to read as someone interested in these women as people as humans as individuals um I was just stunned that no book existed that did that that introduced you to Gates Grace Fryer and to Catherine Donahue and you know walked in step with the women and celebrated you know their personal triumphs as well as commemorating their tragedies. and so that's why I wrote the book was to write a very human interpretation of this story and if you read The Radium Girls I hope it doesn't read at all like dry and dusty or even you know hugely scientific history even though it is a science story it hopefully reads like a novel with you know page turning chapter ends and these women feeling vibrant and, and very present you know I don't write it sort of looking back from now I write it walking in step with the women you know feeling that excitement of getting the job, not knowing the truth and the horror of of what was about to happen to them. Um, So my research for the book was it did look at all the scientific studies that I've mentioned, um, but it also delved into things like courtroom testimonies and interviews that the women gave to newspapers. And I tracked down their diaries and their letters, and I interviewed their family members, you know, sons and daughters and sisters and nieces and nephews, because I was just fascinated with these women as people. Um, the research took months, and I say months rather than years because um, I didn't have years to write it. I I pitched the book and, and you know knew that I was writing it, and literally didn't realise when I started on this journey how much material I was going to uncover and have access to. Um, and having realised that, I got an extension from my publisher, but it wasn't enough to sort of allow me to luxuriate in all the material I uncovered. So it was one of those situations where I have to work seven days a week and, you know, literally 20 hours a day um, to get through it all. And so in some ways, it was, even though it was horrendous in terms of uh, life and being awake and, and, you know, tiredness and all of that sort of thing, it was also so immersive. You know, I lived and breathed and dreamed the Radiant Girls for all the many months that I was working on it. And it was this sort of, completely immersive project in just living their world and you know as I say it was all I did seven days a week 20 hour days I was just with them and I wrote the book with pictures of them you know around my desk locking eyes with them as I was writing about what they were doing and going through and everything that they went through on their journey and so all of that sort of fed into me being able to work quickly on it because it was so immersive
0: Right, Um, It is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show. So, Kate, why Mm. do you think knowing about the radium girls is relevant in today's world?
1: It's absolutely relevant. And actually, I think you struck a really timely chord when you mentioned earlier about, I've heard this story before, you know, didn't this happen with mercury poisoning and so on? What I think is striking about the story of the radium girls is how history can repeat itself Um, and we have heard this story before and unfortunately we will hear it again and we do hear it again so it's absolutely still relevant today because companies will still get away with what they want to get away with and it's up to us to be vigilant and to look at stories like the radium girls and to ensure that what they sacrificed was not in vain and that's not even specifically about radian industries or even any industry that comes from poisoning. You know, that, that's a, a, a journey that we need to focus on beyond even the workplace. We need to look at these women in, as inspirational examples of standing up to your rights, And that's why I think they're still relevant today.
0: All right. I I wholeheartedly agree. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
2: You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2.
0: This concludes our 449th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark zapp my name is Jay Swords. We would like to thank our guest, author Kate Moore, who talked to us about her book, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all listeners to experience the great Pasutu proverb, Hotsa Pula Nala, Peace, Reign, and Prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.